Um, if you've got your Bibles, go to Genesis chapter 21 is where we're at today. Genesis chapter 21. I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Again, this is part of our Bible reading plan as a church. Uh, just for the sake of time, I'm going to try to touch on pretty much the whole chapter today if we have time. This was one of those this week where I kept trying to whittle it down, and I'm just going to kind of glance at the clock back there and see how much time we have left after a bit to see if I can get to everything uh, or not. Because, but this, this chapter is just so good. But I'm just going to read the first seven verses and just trust that you guys have been reading it um, during the week, or if not, we'll just kind of pick it up as we go. But Genesis chapter 21, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let's pray one more time. God, thanks for today. Thank you for your word. God, please give me words to speak this morning that would help make the truth contained in this chapter clear. And I also pray, Lord, that you would give each one of us, including myself, hearts to receive it, to believe it, and to live our lives in light of it. Uh, we need your help again today, Lord, and so we look to you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, I, I truly believe that the, the truth and the concepts that are found in this chapter and that we're going to talk about today is at the heart of everyday Christianity of being a disciple of Jesus Christ every day where, where we get up and we want to live victoriously in Christ, meaning we live a life that brings honor and glory to him, that, uh, that overcomes sin, that is a light in the midst of the darkness, that is a, a witness to the world, that we are disciple makers. Um, at, at the heart of it are the concepts that are found in this, in this chapter. Most struggles um, can all be put into two different types of categories. Again, you could poke at this and say this slightly different ways. But generally speaking, when I talk with people, when I counsel people from a pastoral perspective, or even the struggles that I find in my own life, they fall into one of two categories. It's either trials from without or temptations from within. Or to say it another way, it's suffering from without or sin from within. So... There's, there's cancer, there might, be, there might be criticism, there might be sickness, there might be the loss of a loved one, there might be the loss of a job, there might be people lying about you. There's some sort of resistance on the outside that, that is coming at us. These are trials, these are tribulations, okay? That's one type of <coughs> difficulty that we face in this life, okay? And that happens to all of us because we live in a fallen, sinful world. But there's another type, and that's that, that temptation or that sin within, okay? Where people continue to struggle, and I, and I talked about this last week, we talked about habitual sins, and um, kind of struggling with the same things over and over. And, and for me, I, the, the, 
the second category of temptation for within or sin from within, in my experience, not just in my own life, but in, in helping others to try to follow Jesus, this is, this is the category that we tend to have a harder time with. And here's why. is because when the trial is outward, when the difficulty is outward, we at least know what it is. Like, we know where our enemy is coming from. We know what's facing us. And so we kind of like, we get ready and we're like, bring it. You know, like, like we know where it's at, okay? We know, but, but sometimes the temptation within, the sin within, the struggle within with our own sinful tendencies still, even as believers, it, it just seems more like we're boxing the mist, it seems like we're not, we're not quite sure where it's coming from. It seems to pop up and we do things, we say things when we're, we're least kind of expecting it, and we don't, really, we don't always really know um, where it's coming from, if that, if that makes sense. And, and this passage today, uh, although you might not see it on the surface, it really does, it really does speak to this. Um, it speaks to both of them, but to the second category especially. And I, and I hope that as we, as we walk through it, it's just going to give some practical handles as to how to daily live victoriously in Christ. Okay? That's what God wants for us, is to live victoriously in Him, letting Him receive all the honor and glory and praise from our lives. And so here, here's the first thing we see. Okay, and in, and in our practical struggle to, uh, to do this, to live victoriously in Christ. Very simple, and I feel like this has maybe been one of my points or sub-points in pretty much every single sermon that I've preached so far on Abraham as we've been going through this. But again, I'm not just trying to be repetitive or get on my little hobby horse. It's because it's in the text, and in no place is it more explicit in the text than it is here, and that is this, is that God always does what he says. It just always does it. And again, you're like, Eric, you've been saying that a lot lately. I, I know, I know. But look at verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. The Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. God always does what he says. And again, what I love about, you know, just reading kind of slowly a chapter a week together as a, as a church community and church family is if we've been tracking with this story of Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when we started, that's, that was 25 years ago from where we are now in chapter 21. And 25 years ago, you know, he just calls this, this pagan, barren man and woman to get up and to follow him, all because of grace, not because of anything they had done, but just in his mercy and his grace, he says, I'm going to bless you so that you will be a blessing to the world around you, and that God is going to glorify his name through them. And, and, and along the way, there's, there's been some struggles, there's been some battles, there's been some questions that they've had, there's been some lies that they've told, there's been some sins that they've committed, some really bad sins that they've, that they've committed, and they've tried to kind of justify it. All that has happened along the way, and yet still, God always always does what he says. Unbelievable. Is that their lack of faithfulness in no way stopped God from doing exactly what he says. And if we're going to live victoriously in this Christian life, if we're going to overcome the sins, the, the, if I can use that term again that I used last week, those, those habitual sins that show up again and again in our life, we just cannot leave this foundational truth is that God is not going to stop being faithful. He's not. He always keeps his word. 
And what we see here, again, this, this story, this historical account, it really took place, but, but the imagery here is beautiful. Is that, and we, we touched on this because this theme of laughter came up a, a couple chapters ago in chapter 17 when Abraham and Sarah laugh in unbelief that God comes to them a year before Isaac is born and says, you know, you're going to have a, a son. And you know, they were old when they started out, but now they're really old. And he tells them that, and they laugh at unbelief. But here we see this different type of laughter. And, and what's the point? The point is that all along the way, in the midst of all their unbelief, in the midst of all of their struggles, in the midst of all their sinning because of their unbelief, God was always working for their joy. He was always working for their joy. Verse 6, Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. In everything that God is doing in the lives of his people, when the Bible says that he works all things together for good, I'm just saying the same thing a different way. He is working for your joy. Whether it's in the midst of a trial or an outward suffering that's coming out at you, or even despite your inward sin and temptations that you give into, God is still working for your joy. He's working for your joy. And notice here that this, this work that God does of bringing about that which will really brings joy and, and laughter, and again, not superficial laugh, laughter where you just kind of like get the giggles, but I'm talking like deep abiding joy from the Lord. This comes by God doing it in his people, through his people. And again, this is now gets to the heart of, of, of much of where our struggle lies in not practically being able to overcome sin or live a victorious Christian life that brings God honor day in and day out is because we think that we need to do something for God but the text is very explicit here in what it's emphasizing, and that is that it's not about us doing stuff for God, but it's about God birthing things, literally birthing it in us and through us. Again, if you'll just look at verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. It's, you know, just grammar-wise, God is the subject, Sarah is the object. God is the one acting, she is the one being acted upon is that God works, God, God's work comes through his people, but it's not necessarily done by his people. It's done through his people, by him. Um, and God's faithfulness to keep his promises is the source of his people's joy. Let me say that again. God's faithfulness to keep his promises is the source of his people's joy. That is where your joy comes from. Jesus was working towards this. On the night that he was betrayed, and by the way, just a little side note here, um, in just a couple weeks we're going to finish up the life of Abraham and we're going to jump in our Bible reading plan to the book of John, chapters 13 through 17, and we're going to allow that to take us up to Easter. Those chapters, verses 13 through 17, is what's called the upper room discourse. It is Jesus speaking to his disciples just a few hours before he's going to be arrested and eventually, and eventually crucified. And just skipping through some of those chapters here in John 15, John 16, and also in John 17, I want you to hear one of the things that Jesus is repeating to his disciples in the midst of that one conversation that they were having that night. In John chapter 15, he says, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you 
and that your joy may be full. In John chapter 16, verse 24, until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. John chapter 17, verse 13, he's praying into the Father and the disciples are listening. And he says, but now I am coming to you, Father, and these things I speak in this world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Now in just a few hours, Jesus is going to allow himself to be arrested, betrayed, and crucified. And when I say he allowed himself, I mean exactly that. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. In fact, they're going to come to arrest him. They're going to say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to say, I am he. And they're all going to fall backwards at him just speaking the fact that he is the great I am. But even though he is going to allow his disciples to go through a dark time of confusion and chaos and not understanding, and why, Lord, why are you allowing them to arrest you? And why are you allowing them to kill you? In all of that, Jesus was working for their joy. But it didn't seem like it in the moment. But he was. It's exactly what he was doing. He was working for their joy. Just like it didn't seem to Abraham and Sarah that for 25 years, God was holding out this promise that he was working for their joy. And as you, as you look at the, the struggles in Abraham and Sarah's life, and even the struggle that we're going to see here later on in the chapter with now Isaac and, and this other son, Ishmael, that was a result of, of them trying to figure things out in the flesh, this is always where their struggle came from. All the problems in their life came from the fact that they stopped believing momentarily that God was working for their joy. They believed somehow that he was not faithful to his promises, that he doesn't always do what he says. And it never turned out good. And, and that's what, guys, that's what I want us to, that's what I want us to not do. <laughs> Every day believe in God's goodness. I, I want us to have a posture of practically trusting in the promises of God as our source of power in all that we do. A posture of practically trusting the promises of God as the source of power in all that we do. And th- this, is, this is really important. And again, we'll see this as we get into Isaac and Ishmael here and, and, and the picture that it is. But there's a big part of the Christian life is embracing this paradox that it's when we're weak and in our weakness that we're actually strong. We so want to pretend like it's Like, if we can look good, then God looks good. But that's not how it works. It's in our our weakness. It's when we don't look good, and we know that we don't look good, and we're just honest about it, that God then works through his people. It's when we're barren, and we embrace that barrenness. Like Abraham and Sarah, that then God births something in us that that only he can do. Um... I don't know why this is, it's just kind of random, but it's why I'm using it as an illustration because it's been coming up lately. Is I ha- I've had a handful of people ask me lately if I still get nervous when I preach. And the answer is yes. I'm nervous every single week. Uh, and it's not that, I mean, maybe I'm a little less nervous than I used to be early on, but it's not that I'm not nervous, but it's that I get used to being nervous, if that makes sense. So every week, and this is the, this is the honest truth, but this is an example of what, I, of what I have to do. And when I talk about having a posture of practically trusting in the promises of God as the source of your power, um, almost every week, uh, there are some weeks when I kind of forget to do it, 
But I'll be standing down there as we're wrapping up like the third song, and I know, you know, about the third song, you know, I, I come up, and I always ask the worship team before we start, and I'm like, what's the last song, and how are you ending it? Because I've always had those Sundays where I think they're done, and I go walking up the stairs, and they're not done, and then I'm like, yeah, walking back down, and I feel weird. But anyway, but as we're, as we're like halfway through the, the third song, um, I usually just stop singing, and I just have this little routine that I go through in my head and praying to the Lord. I said, God, I can't do this. But God, you can. And so I need your help. And I trust you. And there's usually not any goosebumps. I'm not like caught up to the third heaven and have some great epiphany. But I just, I go through that. My mind, God, I cannot do this. But you can. And I need your help. And usually, then, I always tell myself something that I know is true. I give myself a promise. This past week, I uh, you know, was together with a family. It's going through a difficult time, and I read Psalm 46 with them. Where God says, I, he says, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46, 11. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And so today, as I was getting ready to come up here, I said, God, I can't do this. Lord, I need your help. I know that you can, and I trust your promises. I trust that you will be exalted among the nations, which includes Berlin, Ohio. And so, here we go. And then you go and you, and you act upon it. And again, I, <laughs> my... I wish I had that posture towards the promises of God every moment of my life. I don't. And it's because I don't have that posture every moment of my life towards the promises of God, meaning that my posture, meaning like I, I need them. <laughs> I cannot do this. That's when I sin. That's when I don't live in practical victory. Is because in those moments I, I'm trusting I'm trusting in myself. Um, our regeneration recovery program that we started here a couple months ago and that I would encourage you guys to still get involved in at some point along the way. Uh, it's a 12-step recovery program um, that is just simply, it's just slowing down and it's just every step is just part of the gospel. All it is is applying the gospel. That's it. It's just applying the gospel to your life is all, is all the program is. That's why it's, it's ultimately just discipleship. But here's step one, okay? Step one is admit. Admit. This is, from the, this is how they sum it up in the, in the Regeneration Step One book. They say, we admit that we are powerless over our addictions, brokenness, and sinful patterns. That in our own power, our lives are unmanageable. Amen? But not, did you hear? That, that's not step five. That's not step seven. That's not step 10. That's not step 12. That's step one. But the problem with most of our lives is that we like to push that down the road. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll get to that, but let me try it. Don't, don't try it <laughs> in your own strength. The testimony of the word is clear about who we are. That is that apart from him, we can do nothing. And step one, step one, step one 
is admitting this. Saying, God, I can't, I can't do it. I'm powerless over my sin. I'm powerless over the trial that might be coming at me from without. I'm powerless over the temptation that might be arising from within. And I need you. And I need you. But God always does what he says. And clinging to his promises is the, is the first step in us living victoriously. Secondly here, and you're going to see this theme of, as you go on in the chapter, of this theme of laughter continuing to get teased out. Again, there's a motif here of laughter that we saw back in 17 here now with this real laughter, this good joy of the Lord. But now there's one more type of laughter. Look at verse 8. It says, And the child, child grew and was weaned, and this is probably about two, three years old, okay, um, back in that day. And, when, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. And it's literally here, um, uh, Ishmael, Hagar's son, was, was Isaacing him. He was laughing, but it wasn't in a good way, in a joyful way. It was in a mocking way. It was in a hurtful way. Verse 10, so she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with the son of Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. And that's kind of a weak sauce translation. Like in the Hebrew, it's like he was extremely angry. He was extremely distressed. Because this is also his son. You remember how that that happened with Hagar um, back in chapter 16. Verse 12, But God said to Abraham, Do not be displeased because of the boy and because of your, your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to do, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Now, so important imagery here. You have Isaac who is a picture of the joy that God has literally birthed in their life. And how did Isaac come about? God did it. God did to Sarah and Abraham as he had promised. God did what he said. God births this, births this joy in their life. And now, though, there's conflict in their life. And why is there conflict? There's now conflict between what God had brought about and what Abraham and Sarah had brought about through Hagar in the power of their own flesh in the power of their own self-determination. Do you see the picture? And so these two, these two children, these two offspring, are at war with one another. Now, on a natural level, okay, and just to put this out here, is, is in God sending them away, he's not being cruel. If you go on and you read the next several verses there, um, verses 14 through 21, God is going to take care of them. He sends Hagar and Ishmael away, but God supernaturally provides for them. God had promised that he was going to provide for them. So on a natural level, God is not mean here in casting, in casting them out. But this is a very, 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 very important theological picture that God wants us to understand. And I want you, <coughs> I don't do this often, but keep your finger here, and I want you to flip over to Galatians chapter 4, okay? Flip over to Galatians chapter 4, and see here how Paul picks up on this Old Testament story and this imagery and gives us some really important theological uh, concepts that he, wants us, that he wants us to grasp. 
So in, in Galatians chapter 4, verse, verse 21, okay, it, it, here's the deal in Galatia, is that the Galatian church had accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior, but now some false teachers had come in who were trying to add to the work that Jesus had done. So Jesus was enough. Jesus is enough for salvation. You hear us say this all the time. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You cannot add to it or take away from it. Okay? But that's exactly what they were trying to do. They were trying to add to it by saying, yes, Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus observing some of the ceremonial laws uh, that you need to follow. And, and Paul just, just beats that up through the whole book of Galatians and tells them how wrong they are using some of the strongest language that you could possibly use. Okay, now in Galatians chapter 4, he's now going to come at this again from another angle, as he's been doing, talking about how this, this idea of trying to carry out the, the, the will of God or the purpose of God in the power of our own efforts, it will never work. It will never work. And here's the imagery that he gives, Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. He says, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, and one by a free woman. So who is that? The slave woman is Hagar, the free woman is Sarah. Verse 23. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Now what does he mean by that? He, he means that it was done in Abraham and Sarah's, in, in their own effort, in their own concocting this plan to try to fulfill the promises, to try to make the work of God happen. They ended up birthing Ishmael. Okay? Born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through the promise. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. And now, Paul just kind of, he, he just riffs through the Old Testament here with a bunch of imagery, and I'll unpack this in just a second. But he says, one is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those who have a husband. Verse 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. So this story about about. Isaac and Ishmael, and Ishmael mocking him with this l mocking laughter. Paul uses the word persecuted here. This is a source of conflict, just like it was back then, even now in the lives of believers. Okay? We're going to talk about what that is. Verse 30. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we are not children of the slave but of the free woman. And then there's this famous verse that most people know from Galatians, uh, in Galatians 5.1. He then says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And many times, you know, we, we get that verse and we put it on our coffee mugs or our t-shirts or our wall hangings or whatever, and it's, that's great. It's a great verse. But the context of it is, when he's saying, for freedom, Christ has set us free, he's speaking of the freedom that Sarah had to just receive what God was going to do through the promise. Okay? Now, I don't know if you're following me or not. Can I get that little chart up there, Conrad? Okay, so here's just a real quick summary of, what, of how Paul goes through this in, in that passage, if you were following this. Is he, he's just contrasting. 
back and forth, down through this whole thing, is that Sarah, as opposed to Hagar, Sarah was the true wife, she was free, Hagar was a slave woman. He says they represent two covenants. Sarah represents the new covenant, Hagar represents the old covenant. Sarah gave birth to Isaac as a result of a promise, God doing the work in her. Ishmael was born by Abraham and Sarah trying to work it out in their own power, in their own strength. Sarah is, uh, represents freedom, while Hagar and Ishmael represent slavery. Sarah's will happen according to the promise, just trusting God. Uh, Ishmael happened according to the power of the flesh. Yet the power of the Spirit along with this. Versus Mount Sinai. Why, why Spirit and Mount Sinai? Because Mount Sinai is where the law was given. Okay? And throughout the New Testament and other places like Corinthians, Paul uses the same type of language contrasting now the life that we're to have in the Spirit as opposed to the life under the law where, uh, uh, which was given at Mount Sinai. And then he compares the Jerusalem above. There's a new Jerusalem in heaven that is one day going to come down out of heaven to earth at the end uh, when God uh, restores all things. And there's the present Jerusalem. Primarily speaking of back in Paul's day, but the same thing would be true today, where there are man-made rituals that people go through to try to reach, reach God, but that's not, that's not the way it works. So are, are you following me? Okay, I know that I'm throwing, a, th- I'm throwing a, lot, a lot at you here. Now keep those up there for a second, Conrad. And here's, you know, I might need to explain a little bit, but here's a question I want to ask you. He's saying kind of the same thing in each one of those lists, okay, contrasting the two. But which one of those lists most accurately represents your life? As you think about your life, as it is now, would you describe yourself, primarily the the main one I want to get here, as would you describe your life as free or are you enslaved? Even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you know that you've been born again and the Spirit of God lives in you, if you are practically living day to day in bondage to habitual sin, what I want to say is one of the reasons for that is because you have not yet admitted the truth, which is what I said earlier, you have no power to overcome it, you need Jesus. And you need to stop thinking that you can overcome it in the power of your own flesh. That's one of the reasons why you're living in slavery. Are you following me? Are you living under the law? With a bunch of rules and regulations? Or are you living your life as the sons of God are intended to, being led by the Spirit of God? Are you living your life in your own efforts? Some of you are very, very, very disciplined people. And you will just get that white knuckle grip and you will just cling on and you're, you're not going to let it go. You're like, it's working, just leave me alone. My process works. Does it really? Because you seem pretty miserable. That, that's not how change happens in the Christian life. Change happens in the Christian life by not the power of the flesh, not the power of self-discipline, but by the power of the Spirit and of the promise that God is going to do in you what he said he's going to do. And, and again, this is how we start the Christian life. Here's my big contention, okay, is that we start the Christian life. You can't, if, it, if, it's, if somebody's truly born again, you can't start it 
in any other way other than saying, Lord, I can't do this, I can't save myself, I need you, please save me. You call upon the name of the Lord. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. You're truly born again, God saves you. And then my contention is, is that we're, even though we're saved that way, we immediately jump over to the other way of living. Even though that's what saves us, I, I contend that 99% of the time, even though we know that we're saved by grace and only trusting the promises of God, what we immediately do is jump to the old Hagar slavery way of living. And to be honest with you, this is my contention with, with so much wrong teaching that goes on in churches is that many churches, while they would not call themselves legalistic, what they teach is self-help. That's not the type of transformation that Christ died to bring to you. Christ died to bring supernatural transformation. And it doesn't mean that we just, you know, he sprinkles the pixie dust on us and we just float around all day just not having any struggles. But the way we fight it is by having a correct posture towards his promises is by every day like, like those steps like for those of you that that are in regen or those of you that that aren't but you know like like going through those like those those steps and step number one of admitting that we can, that's an everyday thing that's an every hour thing that's a multiple times an hour thing god i can't do this i need you i trust your promise that you're going to do this in me because i can't so please help are you with me? The, guys, I'm, I'm telling you, this is where the battle is. And, and the church, if I'm being honest, um, the, the, the church in America, we, we pump out Old Covenant, Hagar, Ishmael, slavery, flesh, Mount Sinai, Old Jerusalem, quote-unquote, Christian material all day long. We just pump it out in a new book, in a new podcast, in a new conference, or whatever. And in the end, all it is is us in our own efforts trying to be more disciplined. That's right. There has to be real transformation by the Spirit of God. And it comes when His people trust the promises. So, so how, how do we do this? How do we practically live in free? Well, let's look at this passage in Galatians a little bit more, if you're still there. Just a couple of big things. One is, you have to embrace your barrenness. Right there in the middle, verse 27, he quotes here, this is actually a quote from Isaiah 54, but it's speaking of the same thing. He says, rejoice, O barren one. We don't like to rejoice in our barrenness. We like to hide our barrenness. But we have to rejoice in it. We have to embrace it. Again, this is that paradox that I was talking about. Again, I'm just, I know I'm being repetitive here, but I, I want us to get this. That we have to rejoice in the fact that we can't do anything for ourselves. We have to rejoice in the fact that we have to admit that we have no power over our sin apart from the Spirit of God in us. Don't just begrudgingly do that. Don't just begrudgingly say, uh, I guess I'll admit it, you know. It's kind of, uh, if I can, I, I, my, my poor boys, they just get used in my sermon illustrations all the time. But, you, you know, it's, it's like when one of them gets busted. Well, did you do this? Did you, you know, 
did you hit your brother? No, I just, I just bumped him with my elbow, you know. Okay. Like, okay, yeah, I guess I did that. Like, that's not, like, don't just begrudgingly admit it. Okay? Admit it. And don't just admit it. Rejoice in it. Yes. I'm barren. Yes. I have no power over my sin. Thank you, Jesus, that you have given me this thorn in the flesh to make me draw close to you because there's nowhere I'd rather be than close to you, Jesus. And as we rejoice that we're barren, we walk in all those other things, the freedom, the promise, the power of the Spirit. Secondly, you got to remember that this is who you are, that this is your inheritance. Verse 28 Back in Galatians. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of the promise. How did you come to know Jesus? He did a work in your heart. And you trusted him. He did that. That's how the Christian life starts. That's how the Christian life continues. And this freedom that he's called us to, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Track with me through Galatians just a little bit, a little bit longer. Okay? If, you'll, if you jump down here to around Galatians chapter 5 then, again, the, the, the chapter divisions sometimes throw us off because we think he's starting a new thought and that's not the way it was. Um, but later on in Galatians chapter 5, he's going to continue on this, this theme of freedom. But remember, the freedom in the context is rooted in this imagery of Hagar and Sarah. Verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers, so remember who you are. You're children of the promise. You're children after, after Isaac, and you were called to freedom. But some of you need to believe that God has called you to this type of freedom. He's called you to this freedom where you admit that you're barren and where you experience the power of his spirit and cling to his promises. He says, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why were we set free? So that we could love as Christ loved. See, truly legalistic people that are, that are concerned about trying to somehow work everything out in the power of their own flesh, they don't love very well. Do you know why they don't love very well? Because they're very concerned about their performance. And when you're concerned more about your performance rather than the person that's in front of you that God has called you to love and to serve, you, you're not walking in freedom. It's not going to work well. Okay, so... I want to, you know, the other big, big thing here that we need to touch on, going back to Genesis, and, and this idea of, of Ishmael and, and Isaac and how it was troubling to Abraham. I, I, I want to say this, is that, guys, what I'm talking about, embracing your barrenness, rejoicing in your barrenness, rejoicing in the fact that you can't do it, admitting that you have no power in and of yourself, apart, apart from Christ, this is not natural to us. And it causes a conflict within us. It causes turmoil within us. Just like it caused in Abraham. Yet he still had to do it. We have to send that old mindset away. In the context of Galatia, uh, of, of the Galatian church, you know, Paul saying, get these false teachers out of here. Separate from them. But it's not just about separating from people. It's about separating from that teaching, from that mindset from that old way of doing things. And instead, and instead trusting 
trusting in Christ. So let me just stop and say, I know that, that, that might have been a lot. I hope that made sense. But if I can just look you in the eye for a second, okay, and if you call Mercy Hill home and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, I just want to look you in the eye and I want to say to each one of you, brothers and sisters, God has called you to freedom. It's okay to believe that and to want that for yourself because it is the very reason why Christ came to die. He came to set us free. And while I, I, I want to be clear, that this Christian life, there are trials and there are temptations and there's, and there's struggles. That's true. But at the same time, we fight those battles and we face those struggles as free people, not, not as slaves. There's one more, one more image here in the text. Okay, it's 1108. I'm going to go for it real quick. Okay, I told you I was just going to glance at the clock and see where we were. Um, and even though I should probably quit, I'm not going to. Uh, but just, just real quick, okay. You got this last little story at the end of 21 with Abraham and Abimelech. So Abimelech was last, last week in chapter 20 as well too. Um, they've now kind of become friends. A Abimelech has watched Abraham's life from a distance for some time now. And here's what he says, verse 22. He says, God is with you in all that you do. That's the testimony that Abimelech says about Abraham. This, is, this should be the world's testimony about, about us, even if they might not agree with everything. And they will, because if we truly just keep trusting Christ, like he, he's not going to stop blessing us. He's going to always do what he says. He's going to do what he says. God is with you in all that you do. And so Abimelech wants to, make, wants to make a covenant with him. And then Abraham, it says he reproves, verse 25, he reproves Abimelech about a well of water that was seized by Abimelech's servants. So Abimelech had some servants, and they seized a well that Abraham had dug. And Abraham says, I want this, I want this well back. And Abimelech's like, well, okay, well, I'm sorry. I didn't even know that this had happened, verse 26. I'm kind of paraphrasing here. Um, he goes, I, you didn't tell me until today. I didn't know about this. And then Abraham takes these sheep. And again, Abraham is making a really big deal about this well. And he's like, I'll give you these sheep. And you know, Abimelech's like, why? You don't need to give me the sheep. I told you you could have the well back. And, and Abraham's like, no, I want you to take these, these sheep. Verse 30, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand and that this is a witness for me that I dug this well. So Abraham is just being really adamant. This is my well. I dug this well. And, and why is he being so adamant about this? It's because he, here's the point. He wants to make it clear. He wants to make it abundantly clear that God is the one that has provided this well for him in the midst of this dry land in the desert. So we've talked about this before. As we, as there's been other places where it's touched on wells, this motif of a well in the scripture, uh, especially in Abraham's life. And it, it, you, know, you didn't just you know, have your little water bottle or whatever with you. You, had to, you could only survive in and around these wells. And, and Abraham is saying, this, this, is, this is my well. God provided this for me. And I want it to be known to you. These lambs serve as a witness to you and to everybody else that this is my well because the Lord is the one that has provided it for me. And, and what I see here in this, in this picture of the well, and then also, if you'll, um, just at the very end of the chapter here, verse 33, it says he went on and he planted a, a tamarisk tree by the well. Now, you didn't usually plant trees out in the middle of the desert. It didn't tend to go real well. But it does when there's a water source. It does when there's a well. 
And verse 33 says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And again, I know I'm throwing a lot at you here very quickly, <laughs> um, but this name, everlasting God, this is a new name of God revealed in the scripture, just like we saw El Shaddai was revealed a couple chapters ago for the first time. Here it's El Olam, and it's translated in the English everlasting God, but it, it's, it's the idea that God is the eternal one. God is the eternal one. So, here, so here, here's the image is that Abraham now, after 25 years of struggle, messing up, not always doing everything right, at times not believing perfectly, but God has finally fulfilled his promise. And this is a beautiful picture of maturity and where God wants to, I believe, bring every single one of us, is that where we make it adamant to everybody around us, listen, here's my well, here's my source of life, this is where I get life from, This is how I survive in the desert. It's Christ. There's no other name. It's Jesus. And see, if you you want to say, yeah, it's Jesus, but I I, I still do this. It's it's Jesus, but I went to this little self-help group and this seminar, and and this really helped me. As long as you're still doing that, you're going to remain immature. Because the truth is, there is only one well. It's Christ. And the most mature people are those who will fight and give up everything to say, I I ain't leaving this place. I'm staying by my well. I know where my life comes from. I know where, where where the source of strength comes from. It's Jesus. And we think that, that mature people and people that become, as Abraham here, this tree is kind of like a picture of Abraham. It's like he believes that he's going to be established in the land. It goes on and it says that he dwells there in the land for many days. He stays there. If we want to be established, if we want to become a mature tree, what do we need to do? We need to stay by the well. People think mature people are like, what's your, what's your secret? And again, we've made literally a billion dollar industry out of this, not just in the world, but in the church in America. So what, what, what's your secret? I'll tell you the secret. It's Jesus. And we just stay by him. And we just cling to him. And we just keep drinking from him. And it's when we wander off to other sources, mainly the source of our own strength, our own self-determination, or our own willpower, or our own wisdom, or our own ability to just, you know, figure it out and become wise and make better decisions. That's not going to work. Jesus is the source of life, folks. And when we're clinging to Jesus, drinking from the well that he is, And man, he pours out every single day. Amen? He never runs dry. Amen? He just just keeps pouring out even despite our faithlessness at times. When we do that, though, that's freedom. That's freedom. And I want that for you. I want that for us. And more importantly, God wants that for us. And so if you find yourself this morning not walking in this freedom that God intend. I just want to tell you this morning, I want to proclaim it to you, and I'm going to believe that you will reach out and receive it by faith, okay, and trust it, is that Jesus is the ultimate source of joy. Worship team, you can come up and we'll close, okay? One other thing here, let me, you know, there's so much more in this chapter we didn't get to, but one more thing is that Jesus is the better Isaac. What does Isaac mean? Isaac means laughter. It's the idea of deep abiding joy that God works in our life. Jesus is the better Isaac. 
We're going to see this again in kind of a different light or from a different angle next week in the passage we're going to look at. Um, But let me read a familiar passage here from Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were filled with great fear. And right now you're like, does he know that Christmas was two months ago? Yeah, I know. Just hang with me. This is why it's not good to let our sentimental holidays rob us of gospel truth for us every day. But he goes on here. They were filled with great fear, and the angel said to them, Here's here's the pronouncement as Jesus is coming onto the scene. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Is that Jesus is the better Isaac? Isaac came and he brought joy, he brought real God sent laughter to his parents and a few people that knew him. But Jesus came to bring joy to the world. Amen? And that joy, folks, is yours every day. As you just embrace your barrenness, admit that you need him, and trust his promises. God, please help us. Please help us to walk in the freedom that you came to provide. Thank you God, that you so loved the world that you gave your only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, everlasting joy. We love you, Lord. I just pray, God, that as we stand and as we sing this last song, that as we do this thing outwardly, that it, would, it could just be an outward act of faith for many that are here this morning that feel like they're in bondage, that feel like they're living under the law, that feel enslaved. And I just pray, God, that as they sing, that you would set them free. Thank you for loving us, Jesus. It's in your name I pray. Amen.